You're listening to Soundbite, the podcast that's food for your ears. I'm Celine Roberts. This week, we'll be speaking with Cleveland chef Jeremy Umansky about the mystery of koji, a mold that has been cultivated in Japan for thousands of years. Usually, when the words mold and food are used together in a sentence, it may not have the tastiest results. Well, except in the case of cheese. However, Chef Umansky has been putting koji to work using unique methods to lend flavor to his food and cure meats in nearly half the time. Here's Chef Umansky talking about his silent partner in the kitchen. My name is Jeremy Umansky. I'm from Cleveland. I am a soon-to-be restaurant owner with my wife and our business partner, Kenny Scott. We're opening a restaurant called Larder, a curated delicatessen and bakery. It's a Jewish delicatessen where we make all sorts of things from scratch, and we use a wonderful, wonderful mold called koji in a lot of our food production. Can you tell me about how you came upon this mold? Sure. I think first we both just said the word mold, and that gets a little scary for people uh, when it comes to food, right? We, we see mold growing on our food in our fridge, and we just throw out the whole container. We don't even open it. just scrape it off. <laughs> <laughs> by being honest. You, you see, you're like me. <laughs> you're like me. That's totally cool. Um, but this is a beneficial mold. Just like uh, in the realm of fermentation, we have beneficial bacteria, these good bacteria that are good for our, our body, our microbiome. Uh, this mold is beneficial in terms of what it does to food. It doesn't spoil food, but it transforms it. And this mold has been used for literally thousands of years. And most predominantly, the foods that it's used for would be sake, miso paste, and soy sauce. So if you've eaten any of those foods, you've eaten this mold. Koji is classified as a fungi. It is, and all molds are. They share a lot of similarities with the fungi we're familiar with, which would be mushrooms we buy in the grocery store, or if you're someone that forages, ones that you find out in the wild. Uh, the main difference between those and a mold would be the fruiting body it produces. A mold doesn't produce a mushroom. Uh, they produce something called a conidia, which kind of looks like um, a balloon on a string. It's got a straight stalk that comes up and on top is a balloon-like structure and that fills with spores and eventually it bursts open and lets the spores out versus a mushroom comes up and it has gills or it has another apparatus that releases its spores. So that's the main difference between a mushroom and a mold. Koji has a rich history in Japan specifically. Are there differences between the way that you're using it and the way that it's been traditionally used? It depends who you ask. Uh, some people would say yes and others would definitely say no. Um, so a sake maker in Japan or a koji grower in Japan, you, you have to keep in mind that in Japan, uh, koji has actually been declared the national mold. So it has as much importance and symbolism behind it as the stars and stripes or the bald eagle does here in America. It's that important and that ingrained in their culture. So over thousands of years, they've literally developed very specific ways that it should be handled, grown, and taken care of. A lot of what I do is not those ways. 
And part of the reason that we developed the techniques that I work with is that access to information about working with and growing koji in English is extremely, extremely sparse. It's all in Japanese, some's in Korean and other Southeastern Asian languages and dialects. So we essentially had to find ways that we could work with it and essentially working towards something we, we refer to as more or less the lowest common denominator. So how could we get this to grow just to be able to get the enzymes at the base levels we needed? We didn't necessarily need to create a highly perfumed, really aromatic koji that would reflect that later in a very, very nice floral sake. That's not what we were looking for. We were looking for enzymes that could be used to work on different sets of proteins and starches for different culinary applications. So our koji compared to a high-end sake maker in Japan, they'd, they'd probably laugh at us and say, this is not koji. Um, but it does the same thing. And because even in Japan, the lexicon for naming different parts of koji throughout different stages of growth and how it's used and what it's used for, that lexicon is confusing enough. In English, we just simply have to borrow the base words that we can use to describe it. So we couldn't necessarily call it something other than koji because on a base level it is, and calling it something else would be very confusing. I mean, when it comes down to it, on a base level, just if we were to look at the chemical structure of sugars, all sugars across the board have very, very similar chemical structures. Sugar is sugar, salt is salt. Koji is koji when it comes down to it. Uh, there's philosophical differences as to what makes a proper koji, and that's where the question of would somebody in Japan call our, sake, or our koji here in America actual koji. We get the same results in terms of its enzymatic activity, so we say no. When you're working with koji, you're working with it to cure meats. That's one of the things, yes. Uh, so koji, like all fungi, as it grows, it produces a number of different enzymes. So they, they don't have the same organs that we have for eating and getting the nutrients we need. They have their own specialized organs. And what they do is they produce these enzymes through their, their rooting system, their mycelium. That's what uh, grows through a piece of wood with you know, a mushroom out in the wild or uh, uh, on an agar plate if someone's growing a fungus or a mold in a, in a laboratory. Uh, this mycelium secretes enzymes. It breaks down base components, things like starches, proteins, fats, into the building blocks that make them up. And once those building blocks are there, then the mold or the fungus can just simply absorb it through this rooting network. Um, so when it does this, koji produces a bunch of very powerful enzymes that do this and work very fast. So we can create really, really exciting and fun foods using koji and using its enzymes. Uh, we can cure meat in a fraction of the time. And when I say a fraction of the time, if uh, you're someone that's ever made brizola, which is a eye of round cut of beef, uh, traditionally made in the north of Italy. It typically takes from start to finish, from raw to being sliced, takes six to eight weeks. We can do it in under two weeks. Uh, we can create breads that eat 
in terms of their texture and their flavor like a sourdough bread without maintaining a sourdough starter by using koji. Uh, so we can do these rapidly accelerated cuts of meat, these wonderfully flavored breads, and all sorts of different applications using these enzymes that koji produces. What does koji have to contribute flavor-wise to these foods? I mean, it has a process that's useful, but it also has its own unique flavors. Very much so. When we think of a lot of molds in food production, typically we think of the ones responsible for charcuterie or blue cheese, things that are stinky, musky, dank smelling. Koji's on the exact opposite end of that spectrum. It's very fruity smelling, it's fragrant. A lot of people describe it as honeysuckle, or they smell Granny Smith apples, or high notes of champagne. Uh, a lot of that will carry over into the food that we're preparing with it. And it'll be sometimes a very forward and dominating presence. Other times it's an undertone and maybe an aftertaste. So depending on what type of koji we're working with in terms of the expression of the koji, whether it's the koji rice and we've ground it up and we've used it as a seasoning, or we've made amazaki or shio koji with it, which are different expressions of the mold, we end up with this wide array of flavor profiles and flavor uh, dominance in terms of when it appears on your palate. Walk me through a step-by-step -step koji cure. Well, I think first it's important to kind of go just briefly step-by-step -step through actually growing koji. So one needs to obtain the spores, and these can be bought different companies online. You can source them directly from Japan. Every once in a while, you'll get lucky and find them in an Asian grocer. Uh, so you need to take the spores. Uh, simply what you do is you sprinkle them on cooked rice or barley or another grain. You incubate that at a set temperature between 80 and 90 degrees Fahrenheit with very high humidity, about 95% and you let that grow for about 48 hours and you end up with what is known as koji. And this is the base koji. This is the koji that you would then take to make a product called shio, which is salted koji, or amazaki, which is sweet koji. That is growing koji. So to koji culture a piece of meat, if we were gonna make this rapidly accelerated charcuterie or replicate a 30 or 45 dry aged steak, those we can replicate after 48 hours instead of a month or a month and a half. Uh, if we do that, we needed to find a way to grow the koji on the meat. First thought would be to take some rice and pat it on there and grow the koji on that. Well, it didn't really work so well. Uh, but rice flour works great. Uh, so we take a cut of meat, we gently season it or we cure it. It depends on our end result, whether we want the age replicated or we want charcuterie. After that, we put inoculated rice flour. So this is rice flour that has the koji spores on it. And then we incubate it at, with those temperature ranges and within that humidity range. And we either end up with a replicated dry aged cut or we end up with charcuterie. Is it an equipment heavy process or could I do this at home if I put enough time and effort into researching it? Um, you could easily replicate this at home. Uh, just as much as it's at home in a restaurant with, you know, have a fairly good equipment budget and I can buy equipment that can handle the production of large amounts of this. I have friends that have been able to grow this with nothing more than a cookie tray, some plastic wrap, and a heating pad that they got from their local pharmacy. 
throw all of the cost of all those ingredients in with the cost of a small packet of spores and you could easily do this over the course of a weekend and at most spend seventy dollars i think the thing that would be most time intensive about that is making sure that you were doing it in a safe method sure are there risks that are associated with growing koji so there are and it, it's really interesting in the united states the methods for growing koji which have been fully established and practiced for thousands of years throughout southeastern asia and japan they aren't approved by the usda as safe the reason being there is uh, certain bacteria that can attack cooked cereal grains if they're held in what the USDA calls the danger zone, which is this range from 41 degrees Fahrenheit to 140 degrees Fahrenheit, essentially. They believe that this bacteria will take hold and potentially kill you in some extreme cases. We do know through research that's been done in various parts of the world that one of the reasons this doesn't happen when making koji is because the mold outcompetes and essentially produces a number of bacterium-specific toxins that prevent things like Racillus bacillus from growing on the koji rice. Time and research in other countries have proved that this process is completely safe if done properly. How long would a culture last? Uh, it depends. So. Uh, when we take our spores, uh, these are the, the base thing you need to be able to grow koji. If they're in a hermetically sealed foil packet, you know, from a company that produces them in Japan or even a company in the United States, I mean, it could essentially be an indefinite shelf life. Uh, if kept at the right temperature, no exposure to oxygen or moisture. Uh, much like yeast could be potentially kept indefinitely if you held it in cold storage and little oxygen exposure. Uh, so it's similar to that in a lot of ways. Uh, once you start making products with koji, so let's say you take your spores and you grow koji rice or barley, that too can hold up for a very, very long time. Fresh in the freezer, it can hold up. We've had some of our cultures for a year plus and able to use them and the enzymes are fine. Does it gain any flavor character the longer it's been going? Not necessarily. What does happen once koji goes to spore, its aroma and its flavor goes from this sweet floral fruitiness and yeastiness to something that's more musky and dank. So that is one change that you can notice and that's one thing we look out for when we grow koji on our meats. We don't want that koji to necessarily go to spore unless we want that flavor profile introduced. But the cultures themselves, they don't really change in terms of time. What they can change on is you could grow, and koji's its Latin name is Aspergillus, Aspergillus arese. Um, you can grow it on rice. You could grow it on buckwheat, on unpopped popcorn, on you name a starchy substance, it'll grow on it. That being the case, after enough generations of growing it out, you have the same species of the mold, but what you end up with is a different variant that may prefer the specific substrate you're growing on. And when that happens, then you can create different types of koji with different flavors. Have you done much experimenting with that kind of we do. Yet? We, I mean, we grow koji on everything from cocoa nibs to wild acorns to 
flowers and grains and cereals and nuts of any and every kind. Our list just keeps growing and growing and growing. For instance, something we grow on cocoa nibs uh, tastes drastically different from something that we grow on steamed rice. When can we have access to all of this koji-cured process? Uh, well, myself and a number of my colleagues from around the country and the world for that matter, we're fairly active on different social media platforms. A lot of times we post step-by-step -step instruction for how to create these things, what to do with them. Uh, we use a specific hashtag. It's open source gastronomy. It's one way we felt that we could promote the technique and the use of them and get rid of the intimidation surrounding some of them using those platforms. So that's always a resource for being able to gleam information and be able to replicate it at home or within your professional kitchen. Another way is come hopefully join us this, uh, this summer, early fall, when, when Larder opens and uh, we'll be able to serve up plenty of it. Cleveland, Ohio. For more Soundbite, visit our archives at www.bghcitypaper.com or subscribe to City Paper Podcasts on iTunes. Come along with me and rescue wasted food with 412 Food Rescue or get some tips for your spring garden from Grow Pittsburgh. Keep tabs on Chef Umansky's new restaurant, Larder, through its Facebook page under Larder, a curated delicatessen and bakery. It's set to open in Cleveland later this year and will certainly be worth a road trip. So until next time, cook merrily and eat heartily.